Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I have the pleasure of speaking with one of my favourite people and psychological mavericks, Dr. Tomas Chamorro Pramuzic. Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University, Tomas is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development and people analytics, and he's written 10 books around these themes and more. He's currently the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, co-founder of Deeper Signals and Metaprofiling, and his commercial work focuses on the creation of science-based tools that improve organizations' abilities to predict performance and people's abilities to understand themselves. Tomas has previously held academic positions at New York University and the London School of Economics and frequently lectures at Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, London Business School and IMD, as well as being the co-founder and CEO of Brazen X and the former CEO at Hogan Assessment Systems. It's a really interesting conversation, this one that dives into personality, competence, leadership and all manner of fascinating and sometimes quite provocative subjects. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. So, Thomas, thank you very much for joining me in conversation. It's been a while since we last spoke. I know, and it's probably because you you didn't want to speak to me. (laughs) It's precisely why I asked you on now, of course. Um, So, (laughs) I'm going to dive straight in with the big question, which is, where do you think we're headed as a species? Um, I mean, the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know where we're headed. I think... uh, you know, I, I could attempt an answer and speculate. Next 100 years or so will be more of the same. And after that, I think we'll have to either upgrade ourselves or we will probably be eliminated and um, replaced by something that is more functional than us. That's interesting. In what sense, upgraded or replaced? Well, you know, I think uh, we are clearly still evolving. And uh, even though I am neither a dystopian, um, apocalyptic uh, technophobe nor a technophilic enthusiast, I think it is true that uh, we've reached a point where most of our progress and evolution depends on um, interacting more intensely and deeply with technology. And uh, I think, you know, it's it's the beginning of that journey. You can call it the third or fourth industrial revolution or whatever. And um, mostly dependent on what the ethical implications are of that, I think we'll either find a way to solve the big problems is that the big problems that we have or um you know self-extinguish annihilate and then be replaced by something else whether it's ai or somebody from uh, elon musk's uh, country club in mars or um an, a, another enti- <laughs> entity or alien that uh, we haven't encountered yet um you know so i don't know i think i probably won't be around you you may because you're a lot younger than me and uh you know, I think uh, for it's hard to really, really um, think about these things because I think we have um, inherent optimism that even if conceptually we can see that things are getting worse, we still tend to assume that tomorrow another day will come and we'll wake up and things will be more or less the same. And it's hard to extrapolate into the future and see radical change, if you see what I mean. We're too wedded to our own experiences and tend to you know, extend the line that 
the dotted line into the future as a continuation of what happened from the past into the present. Mm. What do you think would have to happen in terms of a reframe to get people to more actively and consciously plot a course forward that would result in us adapting and evolving um, as opposed to becoming annihilated or redundant? Uh, yeah, I think the most likely way for that to happen is that uh, some um, some societies and, you know, you could think about it as nations, countries or even um, uh, different approaches to uh, structuring and organizing uh, collective human activity um, will um, make more... Um, adaptive, ethical, and advanced use of technology and uh, outperform those that either are too corrupt, too dysfunctional, or um, lag behind in this area. You know, so I don't think it will be us as a human species will come together and solve um, climate change and uh, inequality and corruption or whatever that is and the destruction of the environment and uh, population, um, demographic population disasters uh, or famine, but uh, some are ahead of others in that race and with, win with, you know, with, with being ahead in that race comes uh, a more evolved or advanced version of us, which by the way, it doesn't mean we're gonna have seven arms and uh, a bigger brain, uh, it just means um, it's probably going to be better values, better behavior, um, you know, uh, more intelligent decision making, much like in a way, if you think about um, most societies today, they are more advanced, more educated, more adaptive than um, the same society was in medieval times or that the average medieval society was, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. It's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about some in some interesting developments that have been happening in Taiwan in the recent years with using technology to create more of a democratic um, interaction with citizens to create policy. And I think it's so interesting as Brexit and Trump and these kind of political fiascos are unfolding and we're seeing the darker side of how data can be manipulated, how um, advertising on social channels can go, you know, pretty much go past unchecked. That dark side of the technological um, spectrum, I think, you kind of, you can also see the opposite shown in other countries. And I wonder... I wonder how many of those sorts of beacon countries we need or countries in positions of leadership in order to create the step change that the world needs to to be able to make a leap forward. Or do you think that that adaptation and progress happens maybe in more of a stretched out kind of way? Or is it hard to tell, really? Um, yeah, it's obviously hard to tell. I, I do think that uh, I think as... Uh, Obama and probably other people once said progress is not a straight line. So, you know, you go you go forward and then mm. backward and, you know, it's sort of more of more of a zigzag um, or there's detours. Um, but mostly, I think today and we can make the same prediction for the near future. Um, technology is an amplifier, I think. So you can talk about and warn people about the dangers of digital dictatorships, as Yuval Harari does, you know, and all what would happen if um, mm. China or another highly sophisticated technological um, top-down state-run uh, superpower has so much data and such powerful algorithms that they can control people's behaviors. Yeah, you know, so that that might happen, and it and it's probably not a a nice uh, scenario. But likewise, you can talk about uh, digital democracy or AI or data enabling um, more inclusive and participatory uh, forms of governments where power is more distributed and people. Um, can make more data-driven choices that are actually beneficial for them. You know, so I don't think, um, you know, too often, too often we point the finger at AI or technology when it's just an amplifier and often something that exposes um, human flaws, human biases, or at least human wishes. You know, and I think that's uh, I, much like Steven Pinker knows. I don't think that uh, just because 
AI gets smarter and algorithms get better at predicting things, at some point they're going to be independent from us and want to eliminate mankind. You know, so there's, there's a difference between being able to solve certain tasks well and actually being emancipated from us and taking control. So why would they have the motivation to do that? And, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, so yeah, so I think, um, uh, but in either scenario, you can see how, um, both types of countries or systems would leave their competitors behind by either making dictatorship or democracy more efficient. Yeah, because I think if I think of some of the countries that are doing better in terms of the progress they're making with technology to help with the climate um, difficulties that we're facing, China is actually really far ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. And yet, do we want to live in that society? If most of us have a sense of freedom and a sense of individual agency, um, you know, you see it with the Hong Kong protests that have been happening more recently, it's very unlikely that communities and societies are going to want to give that up in exchange for a greener um, approach. I don't know. I mean, I think, yes. well, let's let's kind of talk about the green side of things, because I want to sort of dovetail into your area of expertise um, and talk a little bit about leadership uh, as it relates yeah. to this kind of stuff. So I know that recently I was reading today, actually, that um, the Ursula von der Leyen, who is basically putting forward a Green New Deal for Europe, is seeking to completely overhaul how the European Union is governing the economic choices that it makes in order to create a more circular economy and combat climate issues within a short time frame, so between now and 2050. Um, So the reason I'm bringing this in is because your most recent book looks at why so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it. And what I'm really curious about is why there seem to be, like Ursula and Greta and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, there seems to be an uprising of very visible, very vocal female leaders um, stepping up to the podium into positions of leadership that I have never actually seen before and I'm very excited by it. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and about why yeah. this is happening yeah. now? Just, um, you know, big questions. <laughs> yeah, so the book is uh, titled Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It. So I think, you know, there is a page at the end mm. that provides the solution, but mostly, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm still very much an academic at heart and think like an academic. So it's, it's actually quite tedious for me to provide constructive solutions to things. It's much more fun to identify <laughs> and expose the problems. So that's mostly what the book deals with. Uh-huh. And, and, it acts, it, it, and it basically um, uh, focuses on a pretty straightforward and, and concrete issue, which is, um, well, twofold. The fact that on the one hand, as we all know, most leaders are male. On the other hand, uh, as not enough people know, but should know, most leaders are incompetent. So the book tries to establish whether there is a connection, a causal connection between these two things. Uh, Typically, when people talk about the underrepresentation of women in leadership, and I would rather talk about the overrepresentation of men in leadership, um, they imply that, you know, if most leaders are men, um, there must be something inherently better about their style, their capabilities, their potential that accounts for this imbalance. But in order for that to be true and for that logic to stand or hold, um, you would have to first um, show that uh, most leaders are actually effective, competent, or that they have a good impact on those who they lead and um, manage. And that's not the case. You know, we live in a world where you look at the corporate sector, politics um, or uh, public sector, the average experience that most people have with their bosses, managers and leaders is pretty negative. I mean, the, the simplest way to... Um, to prove this is you just go to Google and put my boss is and see, you know, what the <laughs> autocomplete functions are there. I mean, people say, tra- I mean, traumatizing, narcissistic, incompetent, abusive, bully, etc., etc., etc. So um, it follows that, uh, um, I mean, you know, one obvious implication of this is that uh, we are actually not very good at picking leaders. And uh, when democratic voters or voters in democratic systems 
uh, are tasked with electing their leaders, I think you could almost exonerate them or at least um, forgive them because it's just so hard today to look at someone and determine whether they have the skills, the talent, the potential to lead a nation. Things mm. over, the, over the course of human evolution, leadership skills have become much more complex, more advanced and harder to observe. Um, and as a consequence of that, because humans are, I mean, the human mind is a very efficient organ and we optimize for laziness, basically. Yeah. We expect to watch somebody debate someone else for 10 minutes and decide, you know, whether we should vote for this person or not. Um, that's not the case if you go to uh, HR departments or um, actual corporations or organizations who or which are supposed to have experts actually vetting people for um, leadership roles. Mm. And so the conclusion that I reached in my book, which deals basically with um, male leadership incompetence, is that the main reason why there is a surplus of incompetent men in leadership roles is that actually we don't care as much about competence as we say we do or we think we do. And to the point that we would rather actually having competent men in leadership than not just competent women, but also competent men in leadership. So we are seduced by three main attributes, overconfidence, charisma and narcissism that not, not, are not only unrelated to leadership effectiveness, but negatively related. And yet these are the attributes that help people get to the top. So, you know, the qualities that help people get promoted or climb up the political ranks of an organization or a country are the very attributes that make them fail later on. And so to answer the other part of your question, it's, it's, unsurprising that many of the disruptors in the space of either politics or climate change um, uh, discussions or any um, any struggle for power or uh, attempts to defy the status quo um, are not just very different from the people who are in charge from the elite and that they're more connected to the masses, more empathetic and more altruistic, but they're also female. Um, and so I think even though I've been saying the same things for about 10 years that I published now in the book, um, sadly, because things haven't got better and because our expectations have risen, but events have declined, um, people are fed up with things. And that's why, you know, the upside to me is that a lot of people are buying my book. And I did dedicate it to all the incompetent men who are the main Salesforce driving, uh, you know, sales to my book. So that, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the last page of the page of the acknowledgements. Um, I thank them for um, being such a reliable and high performing Salesforce. But you know, I'd rather it be the other way around, and uh, we selected leaders on the basis of their talent and their potential. You know, which, by the way, is the best gender diversity intervention: is to focus on talent and potential rather than gender, because if you select people on the basis of their competence, integrity, EQ, coachability, humility, um, and empathy, you will end up with a slight surplus of females. Why is that, do you think? What is it that, that makes it more likely that women will, I don't know, maybe I want to say like perform better on those traits or basically display greater senses of those traits? Yeah, and you know, and I think here it's a good question because here sometimes the feminist or traditional feminist um, uh, get annoyed when I say this, you know, that uh, uh, so, you know, historically when you see, for example, all the research on double bind that on the one hand, um, you know, we complain that women are too kind and caring to be leaders, but then when they behave like uh, psychopathic or narcissistic, uh, aggressive uh, males and they out-male out males in masculinity, um, we are intimidated by them and are scared, you know, because they look like Margaret Thatcher. So um, actually, if you look at the traditional feminist perspective on this, they would say, no, women are not kind and caring. They are just like men. What I'm saying is that they are... Mm on average, more kind than caring, but that that's actually a strength. And so if you think about the reasons for that gender differences in agreeableness and altruism and empathy, 
is clearly somewhat biological and somewhat to do with, you know, levels of testosterone and, uh, um, you know, uh, stuff that you can trace to various uh, brain mechanisms and hormonal uh, distribution or, or balances or imbalances of things. Of course, early socialization and nurturing uh, plays a role amplifying and reinforcing that. Um, and which is why in the last 50 years, um, you see that these differences, gender differences have been decreasing. Generally, we're trending towards Scandinavia and androgyny. Women are becoming more uh, masculine and men are becoming more feminine. Um, well, that's such a curious idea, moving towards androgyny. What does it mean for eroticism if we do that? I mean, there's got to be difference for there to be desire. Oh, you know, um, Natalie, I have a British passport, so don't bring up sex because uh, I am uh, extremely <laughs> repressed about these issues. And uh, you're I, Argentinian. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't talk about this. Yeah, but I've been re-socialized uh, to actually not talk about money or sex. Um, no, I think I think what it means is uh, it's interesting. But I think you know, eroticism in general is very. Um, it's very faddish, you know, I think it's very subjected to um, the, the cultural parameters that determine what's erotic um, are at least as, as uh, unstable as they are stable, if you see what I mean, you know, so and I think, um, you know, I don't know, I was listening to a podcast the other day on how um, in the 70s, David Bowie was a sex symbol for women, even though he was probably the first really androgynous and, uh, and, and feminine um, uh, pop icon. And yet, you know, women in schools would shave their hair and, uh, and try to look like him. But at the same time, because they fancied him and he was so attractive, even though it, it completely changed or redefined the aesthetics of that. So I think... Um, you know, it, it, what it means is, yeah, we probably change every decade or every other decade what we find as sensual, erotic or attractive. Uh, but when it comes to leadership, I think what it means is that um, you would expect less gender differences in the typical predisposition, habits, decision making styles that men and women display. By the way, even if even if we didn't change and we still largely remained um, within this historical overlap where most biological men uh, are have higher levels of psychological uh, masculinity than women and vice versa, uh, testosterone, masculinity and femininity are still ordinal and quantitative dimensions, right? So it's a bit like saying, well, on average, men are taller than women, but we all know some women that are taller than some men. Yeah, it's true. And on average, women are more kind and caring than men, but we all know many men who are more kind and caring than some women, you know? I just think that we haven't sufficiently emphasized how important it is in a leader, how useful it is that a leader can be kind and caring and have empathy and have EQ and be humble and modest and have integrity, which is all about self-control, you know? So, and especially after decades of selecting people with the complete opposite profile, it's really advantageous to have leaders with these more feminine qualities. And yes, they are more feminine because they're more likely to be found in women than in men. So why is it, do you think, I know this is a complex, um, there's probably quite a complex answer to this, but I want to ask it anyway. Why do you think it is that we've, ended up in a position where your book is very relevant, more relevant than ever, and that we've chosen time after time to bring in leaders who then amplify and rigidify a structure which lends itself to bringing in people who are more narcissistic and overconfident and charismatic. What is it about um, the ways in which we make decisions and that we build up our structures that has made this something which is now much harder to change. Because, you know, you look at all the political, economic institutions that we've created, often they reward these behaviours um, which then have a huge knock-on effect to the rest of society because those who have alternative qualities, perhaps more suited to, to benevolent leadership, don't even get a look in. Yeah. Um, I think, you know... I think there there are probably four or five main factors at stake um, or four or five um, main issues mm -hmm. here. Um, 
The first is that uh, even though leadership should be a resource for the group, for the team, and something that enables people to set aside their selfish agendas to work together to accomplish something, um, over the past three or four decades, um, we really reframed leadership as an individualistic, personal career success destination, you know, which, which is why um, there is the growing gap in earnings between people who are at the top and the rest, uh, which is why we celebrate people who seem to accomplish a lot of things for their individual careers, irrespectively of what they do for the rest. And which is why, you know, certainly in the Western world, uh, you hear all the time, you know, there are no statutes to committees and we glorify people like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, etc., etc., etc. So I think, you know, we now see leadership as a very self-centered individualistic thing, as opposed to what it is, which is a psychological process that actually is something that should be for the benefit of the group. And therefore, you know, we've come from evaluating leadership in terms of what effects it has on the team to what impact financial or power impact it has on the individual. Um, secondly, after that happens a lot and you end up with a lot of people with self-centered, entitled, narcissistic tendencies in charge, um, they don't have any incentive to disrupt themselves and replace themselves with someone else. And actually, much like, much like most people, they will tend to hire people who are like them because hiring people on your own image is the ultimate narcissistic uh, um, talent management uh, strategy or approach. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a socially acceptable way to actually display your own narcissism because if you say, okay, this guy is amazing, they're very talented and they look like you, that's like saying, you know, I'm very talented and amazing as well. <laughs> so people hire on their own image, especially especially when they're very senior and when they're more narcissistic. Um, third, I think, you know, as leadership becomes more complex, because for 99% of our evolutionary history, it was about observable um, skills and traits like physical speed, uh, strength, courage and motor coordination, then it became something intellectual, which was still like, what are your hard skills? What are your resume? What's your expertise? But now when it's very psychological and emotional, it becomes very hard to actually judge whether a leader is performing well or not. I think the best example to me is, look, uh, America today, you would think is highly polarized uh, because Trump is a very divisive, mm. divisive figure. But actually, it's no more polarized than it was under Obama. I mean, under Obama for eight years, half of the people loved him and the other half of the people probably wanted him dead. And now it's the same, except that when you are in one half, you can't understand the other half, right? And what's interesting is that you talk to people on different sides and tell them to produce objective KPIs or indicators to either back up their claims that Obama or Trump are doing a terrible campaign or are, do, are having a great uh, presidency, and they either can't produce any facts or they cherry pick and tell you things that are maybe real or not. But, you know, you, it's not like you're looking at the performance of an Uber driver, you pull out the rating and it's like, okay, he's 4.8, so he's better than this guy who is 4.6. And the same happens, by the way, as you know, with Brexit right now, right? So there are people who are saying uh, Boris Johnson uh, or even Brexit as a whole hasn't been as apocalyptic and bad for the economy or politics. Look, the pound is still more or less there. Exports are better, blah, blah, blah. And the other half would quote other statistics. So what I'm trying to point out is not that one side is right and the other is wrong, but that as complexity increases, it all becomes very wishy-washy and therefore we become very partisan, very emotional, and it becomes very irrational, <laughs> your, your connection with leaders. And that, and this is the last point, that um, emphasizes the importance that things like charisma, confidence, and narcissism have because when you're unaware of your limitations and uh, utterly deluded, and I'm going to judge your uh, talent based on what you do for a two or five minute interview, I'm probably going to go, wow, 
she's amazing, you know, because of course you fooled yourself already into thinking that you're greater than you actually are. So you're going to be able to fool other people. That's basically the evolutionary um, reason for the pervasiveness of overconfidence in society. In a normal world, overconfident people want to cross the road when they can't, they get hit by a bus and then they disappear. But in a road where overconfident people say, yeah, follow me, I can fix this country or make it great. And then we all go. Um, actually, we don't necessarily get hit by a bus because if you look at the grand scheme of things, it, the, the, the detrimental impact or effects of what a bad leader does or what a good leader does might not be noticeable in 20 years, 30 years. And even then, you know, right now, for example, more than half of the country in the US would tell you Ronald Reagan was the best president in recent times. And you say, but what about this, 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 this? Oh, well, you know, it wasn't really, you have an N of one and it's very difficult. There's no control. You can't say what would have happened if we had had this person as opposed to this one. Same for Theresa May, right? Uh, it seems, at least to me, that she didn't do that bad of a, of a, um, of a she didn't perform as badly as mm. she seemed to be performing when she was there in the grand scheme of things. But actually, who knows? Because you would have to run that experiment 10 times and put them 10 different people and then see who does it, you know? So anyway, it becomes more complex, more abstract. You need a lot of expertise or to be a PhD in political science to maybe reach a logical conclusion. Most people are too busy watching what their neighbor's cat had on Facebook to care about these things. So there you are. You know, it's like we talk about uh, leaders and politicians like we talk about Manchester United or Liverpool. Who do you prefer? This one? Therefore, everyone else is shit. It's pretty bleak. I mean, I think how do you because listening to you speak, I'm thinking also about the friends of mine, the people that I've met in my life who tend to make more considered life decisions often will have done a huge amount of hard work in therapy or in some form of introspective practice like meditation in which they do the difficult thinking, they do the deep contemplation, they meet with the results of the bad decisions that they've made that they've later regretted and they grapple with that. But that's a huge amount of hard work and a big commitment and something which is generally fairly unpleasant to do. And so I think it's easier for most of us without even mentioning the the level of distraction which we're contending with in modern days. Um, it's easy for most of us to just not want to go there and therefore make decisions based on these cognitive rules of thumb, based on charisma or how I'm made to feel by a brief exposure to someone. But from what you're saying, it sounds to me as though if we are going to make positive changes in which we're making better informed decisions that are more likely to benefit a greater number of people. So we're not just following the leader across the road in a massive pack and waiting to get hit by the, the bus in 20 years time. But we actually think, well, maybe we want to stop the traffic. Maybe we want to build a bridge. Like, how do you, how do you begin to change society to be able to create that? Do you have to change people at an individual level and or does it have to be societal or is it a question of having a few good eggs in leadership positions in institutions which have somehow been able to sidestep this kind of toxic infrastructure that we're so easily encountering these days? Yeah, and I, and I think, yeah, so, um, you know, I think the main issue is that the changes, both positive and negative, mm -hmm. um, happen more slowly than we can observe or care about or care for, you know? I mean, still pretty fast, if you think about in the grand scheme of things, 250,000 years or so of human evolution, uh, 50 years is nothing, right? I mean, we're still in one way or another living in the aftermath of World War II, which is the last, you know, huge um, uh, kind of a global event or so. And, and, you know, then there are other things happening. So, why is this important? First, because, I mean, we are used to instant gratification and everything happening very quickly now. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, because those who are in charge or who want to be in charge um, have little interest in doing things that uh, might um, sort of uh, outdate or... Um, matter even after they are around, you know, so that, so short term individual political or leadership interests or otherwise um, are prioritized over the legacy you want to leave in a hundred years or so. Yeah. But also the third reason, and this is, this is maybe 
where you have to be a little bit more positive and optimistic and, and see it as less bleak, is I think that the foundations of what has been built are so strong that actually um, it's not that easy for somebody to come and destroy things, you know? So again, in hunter-gatherer societies, um, you followed your leader and you lived with the same 10 or 20 people. And if you followed the wrong person or nominated the wrong leader, I mean, you were just eaten and you disappear. Um, today, uh, you make a wrong choice of president or the wrong choice of boss or a company promotes the wrong CEO. And, uh, you know, the share price might suffer a bit or, um, you know, growth figures go down or uh, which is actually testament of how strong the foundations are. Granted, if you have five or ten bad governments or leaders in a row, decline happens. I mean, I come from Argentina where we are perpetually declining or devolving for 150 years. So we went from having a GDP higher than France and Germany. And what happens when you have 20 or 30 bad governments in a row? Well, we're not quite Venezuela, but we're trending towards that. And equally, you can see how difficult it is to suddenly change it in the other direction. Because even if you elect somebody who's amazing, what can they actually do? You know, um, so but I think that's why things like Trump or Brexit are interesting, um, interesting exceptions to the rule, because they are one of very strong, uh, radical shocks to a system in, in the sense that they suddenly want to break with a lot of things that happened before. I mean, there are disruptive events, yeah. you know, and even so, it's not clear uh, how long-standing or disruptive the consequences will be. I mean, I'm not feeling very optimistic, uh, certainly about Brexit, but I might be wrong. And maybe, you know, uh, the formalities change, but actually the country continues the same trajectory that uh, it was continuing. So imagine if you're blindfoldedly or doing like a blind tasting of a chart, can you actually see that uh, in 2016 Brexit happened or are all the figures continuing the same uh, direction? With Trump, for example, if you looked at all the economic, social uh, indicators, um, actually he wouldn't be uh, a change in the path of that line, if you see what I mean. You know, even like if you look at actual statistics of the country, let's say performance or KPIs, between Obama and Trump, who are very, very different in terms of what they represent, the rhetoric and who they appeal to, actually, the country is continuing pretty much the same trajectory. So then you're talking about actually systemic change. So it's not just the figurehead that's that's reflecting back an aspect of the populace. It's more the systemic change. So then how do you begin to change the system um, so that you're rewarding different types of qualities? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that... Um, I think at any point in time, um, there you're are, munching. You're, what are you eating? <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just. Um, I needed a chewing gum because the conversation is getting um, too intense, and I need some uh, oral um, relief. You know, um, and you had a you had a police siren or an ambulance in the background, so I had to uh, try to cover that. I know, noise. but I'm going to edit that out, so that's fine. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, Go on. Yeah, I was going to say that I think it's not like, um, okay, 2020 or 2021, we all uh, come to the realization that it needs to change and it changes, you know, and uh, human activity or civilization changes. No, it's at any point, there are some companies, some organizations, some cultures, some nations, some leaders, basically, who are ahead of others in really betting on a, on, a, on a specific type of system. I mean, part of the importance of leadership um, is based on the fact that leaders create culture, create the rules of the game, what's rewarded and what's sanctioned. And I mean, culture is a reflection of the values of the leader. So if in country A, uh, a leader um, emerges with this set of values, and as a consequence of that, I don't know, the system becomes to optimize for the majority of people as opposed to the people who are very successful, already educated. And let's say, you know, you have like, within even like Western capitalist regime, imagine that that country is called Denmark, right? And then you have another um, country called the UK, 
um, where um, it follows a version of that model closer to the US and optimizes for um, you know, the few um, super educated, wealthy, well connected, you know, more, more like a plutocracy in a way, you know, the ultra rich and, uh, mm. and measures its success, not in terms of how well off the majority of people is or how much quality of life and standard of living improve for the median model or average person, but how it does for the top and how much property prices go up, etc. Well, those are two different models, right? And so you can see what happens to one model or another. I mean, you could model this as a simulation, literally. And imagine if lots of countries are following uh, one path and lots of other countries are following the other path, you will see where, where you end up. I mean, in a way, you know, 100 years ago or 70 years ago, those two alternatives were a lot clearer because you had capitalism and communism. And I think most people would agree that communism, as it was supposed to happen, failed or didn't work out, you know, which is why even communist regimes are today called communist countries, but they're still very capitalist. So that's what I mean. And then and then you can actually it, it matters. It has implications. What values the leaders have and what culture creates because the life of people changes. You can measure it in terms of is there upward, more upward social mobility or downward social mobility? Is there more or less meritocracy? Is there more prosperity? Is there more progress? And so forth. And, you know, one, unlike with companies, one country doesn't buy another country, but, um, you know, the equivalent today would be economies being, uh, in effect, uh, dependent or subordinated to others and becoming, um, you know, becoming uh, kind of part of somebody's market or part of somebody's production mm -hmm. line. When you're thinking about good leadership or examples of countries that are doing this well, are there any that spring to mind where you think, OK, well, that's a model that could yield longer term um, fruitful results that other other countries might look to to base their structures political and economic and otherwise on here's where i have to be more agnostic because um, i mean look i mean personally i think that uh, if you want to generalize i mean uh, the the scandinavian approach uh seems very appealing to me and i like i like i like the principles and i like uh, how it still allows for um growth innovation productivity and if you like, it's like the best combination, possible combination between socialism and capitalism. I mean, it's like rich socialism where most people are very well educated and um, there's a, a, a small gap between rich and poor. Um, even that is being challenged. For example, the current issue of The Economist shows that actually, for example, Sweden is far less egalitarian than we thought it is. And some of the data that Piketty presented is questionable. So you can see how complex that is, right? But let's say that there is that model. Personally, I, I think I find it more appealing than, let's say, um, the US model. But it's easy for me to say while living in the US and not really experiencing that. And also it's still my opinion. So who cares? You know, that's just my preference. I think the important thing <laughs> is that you, you have you have different models. And I think overall um, societies are improving in the way they are governed. If you look at the absolute indicators, for example, what's the percentage of the population that lives in poverty? What's the percentage of the population that is uneducated, that is, you know, child mortality rates? If you look at that, I think we are making progress, but at the same time, our expectations rise more than we progress and we want to see more progress. And even if you go to Scandinavia, for example, and you see that uh, in places like Denmark, only 6% of um, public corporations are run by female CEOs, um, it's crazy. Or, or that in Sweden, uh, where gender equality is very high, the number is 20% or 23%. Um, you know, you go to Norway, where they had to force public sector organizations to have a 50-50 ratio quotas, so they did, uh, but then it had the opposite effect in the private sector, and actually the number of, the proportion of female senior leaders went down because they ended up going to the public sector and they said, okay, we're not forced to do it here, so who cares, you know? Oh, wow. Or if you read indicators 
such as the World Economic Forums or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that say that it would take 108 years under the current uh, pace to actually have gender parity. So, you know, maybe we'll destroy the... We, we're more likely to destroy the planet before that happens, you know, oh, so... No. That uh, just... That's heartbreaking, yeah, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. It is heartbreaking, but, you know, these are, these are the facts. So the, the good news is that we could... Uh, it's in our hands to try to change it. And I think... Um, you can't have any change without awareness, without consciousness and uh, without wanting to do something. So I think that's where I see. So coming back to the, the one of the questions you asked, I think, you know, that's why I think my book has momentum and it fits into that's the side guys at the moment, you know, which is people are fed up, disappointed, and they want to see some of the progress uh, crystallize or spill over into more action so that we can actually make things even better. Mm-hmm. If you had fallen asleep, if you had fallen asleep in the 60s and you woke up today, you'll find a very different world, you know, in most places. So even in, in 50 or 60 years time, um, I think we have evolved and we have improved, but, you know, we want to see something closer to exponential improvements going forward. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about um, retrospective comparisons, so thinking 30, 50, Mm -hmm. 60 years ago, and then thinking about our futures and we feel now or we believe or act as though we were at the pinnacle of progress and, in fact, we're just in this continuum of history that's constantly making itself. So if you wanted to make something... um, change if we wanted to create a, a structure and society and culture that reflect values that are more progressive um i think one of the crucial questions that we have to ask is first of all how can we bring ourselves to awareness of well to be more mindful of and resistant to the dark traits that we often find so seductive in these leaders that we're picking who aren't actually putting um the well-being of wider groups of people at the heart of what they do how can we recognize and hack the seduction of, <laughs> of overconfidence and narcissism, etc.? Look, I mean, look, uh, I mean, the, the, there's no silver bullet or easy um, solution here. But for sure, um, it will inevitably have to do with acquiring more expertise, being more data driven, being more rational, distrusting our instincts. I mean, it takes competence to not just spot, but also stop incompetence. And, you know, so um, it's all fine making fun of uh, um, uneducated voters because they pick someone who you don't like. Um, But then, um, well, first of all, are your educated choices actually better? Do they have a better impact on society or the group? And then secondly, what are you doing or what is the system doing to uh, make people more rational? And, you know, here I am actually very um, uh, cynical because I think um, there are as many educated and rational people who vote because of emotional or partisan um, motivations and make irrational choices um, than than those who we deem or label uneducated, you know? So I think we need to get smarter. We need to, look, it, this isn't as utopian as it sounds, right? I think, I do believe, for example, that it is uh, less important in uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, Taiwan, even Sweden, uh, Belgium, um, and uh, you know, a lot of places that maybe we can describe as uh, less uh, emotional, more introverted, less Mediterranean, less uh, mm. um, sort of um, less um, passionate and uh, less uh, overconfident. I mean, in those places where some of the cultural um, uh, factors that describe uh, how things are done and what's rewarded or not, um, are more likely to vol- value um, self-improvement, uh, humility, and uh, learning and hard work. It is harder in these places to see somebody emerge and win elections because they are a stand-up comedian or uh, look good in camera, you know? And so I think mm-hmm. 
what this tells you is that uh, um, where do those cultures come from? Well, they are the results of lots of things, including leaders that happen and put these uh, parameters in place. So I think for uh, to to simplify what I'm trying to say is like, for example, sanitizing uh, political elections so that uh, charisma, performance and uh, entertainment uh, is de-emphasized in our choices would for sure help. I remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I say this in my book, uh, reading about how in Germany, uh, when people were voting, they completed a 50 question or statement questionnaire. Um, you know, what are your attitudes towards the environment, politics, healthcare, education, etc. And after you answer these questions, it tells you you're going to vote for this name. And people had never seen who they are or they had no contact or, you know, it didn't matter whether you wanted to have a beer with them or they look good or sweaty on camera, mm. you know. So we're, mm. we're, when we're trending towards the opposite spectrum, then it's harder to expect more rational choices, you know. And uh, it's all good to complain that uh, algorithms had, have, uh, are, um, are kind of... Um, um, fomenting or dispersing fake news, but actually it would be more uh, honest to admit uh, that we have a very strong appetite to be for being misinformed or mm. uninformed just because we want to feel right or we want to, um, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, keep our stereotypes and confirmation biases alive. So with all of this, with your knowledge and knowing how we make decisions and what we're susceptible to and the rest of it, how has the research that you've done changed the way that you live your life? Well, this is a very good question. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, so my, my, my instinctive or sort of spontaneous answer would have been to say it hasn't changed it at all because I see it as... Um, you know, one thing is work and uh, theory and uh, why should I bother following my own advice? It will be something so uh, <laughs> petty and mundane to do. And it's so much nicer to have very, very strong and clear conceptual principles that you don't live uh -huh. by. I mean, it makes, it makes life much more interesting. But actually, I think I'm a hypocrite because I think I do, <laughs> I do follow um, in practical terms um, some of my own research um, or research uh, implications or suggestions. I think that, you know, inevitably when you spend a lot of time uh, engaged in logical or empirical considerations or observations of a subject matter, you know, you're still trying to be consistent and, and prove or test whether what you are finding uh, applies or can be experienced in your day-to-day -day life. So, look, I think um, for sure, it's a little bit like when I started studying psychology and everybody said, oh, you know, what do you do? I'm a psychologist. And then they said, oh, are you analyzing me? And he always said no, because um, you're not that interesting and who do you think you are? And I have better things to do would be kind of the normal reaction. But actually, inevitably, you are analyzing people because you are very focused and interested in that and you want to see whether actually you can improve your ability to understand behavior and that starts with predicting behavior. So look, so I think um, three ways in which my findings have changed or impacted um, my day-to-day -day life is like, first, I try to be very uh, explicit and deliberate and uh, clear and concrete about um, my own stereotypes. When I, when I think that someone is likely to be uh, in a certain way, um, I'm very conscious of that. I remember that. And then I actually look for evidence to disprove or refute my thinking as opposed to trying to confirm it, you know. So I follow the scientific method as opposed to the human stereotypical or prejudice method. Um, mm. Secondly, um, I try to be very data-driven in, even in, in my um, everyday life, which uh, drives some people crazy because uh, <laughs> I think, you know, without data, you're just another person with an opinion, as someone says. And I want to be very, I want to see very clear evidence 
um, for even um, your suggestion to go and eat at this restaurant or uh, travel to this place or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, listen to this song. Uh, oh, I bet your friends as, love that. <laughs> You can see that my spontaneity has been killed uh, completely by analytics and, and science. Oh, and, and then I think finally the most important one is, um, even though I never considered myself a feminist, um, I do want to live in a world where we have better leaders. And I think if we um, selected leaders on the basis of talent or competence, um, we would have many more women in charge. So I am, I am an advocate, I, I guess, for this. And, uh, and in some ways, I mean, I see myself as a data-driven feminist or even data-driven sexist. Um, <laughs> so I engage in a fair amount of uh, male bashing, um, which has uh, led to lots of interesting emails arriving to my inbox on a daily basis, which actually uh, make me want to do this more. And, and many of my uh, female friends who work in the area periodically reminding me that people are only listening to me because I am a man and that I should feel mm. guilty for that. And uh, I then tell them that if that is true, then my theory is simultaneously right and wrong. <laughs> if, if people are listening to me only because I'm an incompetent man, then I am right. And I'm also wrong. So I am right as a self-fulfilling prophecy and I'm wrong metaphysically speaking or, or conceptually speaking. But look, if anything, I feel I have the responsibility <laughs> to drive change and make some impact. And uh, it's never enough doing the research or writing in obscure journals that uh, nobody reads or cares to read. Or, and sometimes people cite without having read. So that's why I spend a lot of time trying to um, evangelize or spread the word. And uh, uh, occasionally I get invited to uh, interesting webcasts or podcasts like yours. <laughs> so if you're going to give people listening one insight or piece of advice, how to select for better leaders or to do better in leadership positions themselves, what would you say? I think you know, how to do better in leadership positions themselves be less self-centered and care more about others. And remember that they're there to serve a system and they're there to be a resource for the team or for the group. Um, you know, that is for sure the most important, single most important advice. And it's easy to forget because once you are rewarded and you're promoted and you're more successful and status and power arrive, um, you know, you think it's about you and you become more self-centered. So. Um, mm. stay humble and if you can't do that at least fake humility um, which actually keeps you humble don't, <laughs> don't believe your own hype and then, and then the, uh, mm -hmm. the other question about making better choices look I think that one is really difficult but I think for sure being more deliberate and spending more time thinking and studying the options, the possibilities the alternatives um, and uh, understanding that it should not be about chemistry, skin or initial impressions um, will probably help people um, make better choices. You know, I mean, this, is, this should not be like picking a football team or your favorite rock band or pop band. Um, it, should be, it should be more data-driven. And I think, you know, it's interesting to me that in the old days, you know, a boss was somebody who came, gave orders and made you do stuff. And modern talent management systems in the organizations that try to be more meritocratic, more data driven and who are more, not just more successful, but also more attractive places to work. More and more, the direction um, is being changed or reversed. Like, I think in the future, employees will evaluate their bosses or their leaders. You know, when companies decide whether leaders should get their bonus, be promoted or demoted, actually they will crowdsource the reputation or the performance and see how uh, that person is serving the team or the group. So imagine, you know, instead of having a boss that is in charge of measuring your performance and managing your performance, bosses will be evaluated and managed by their employees. I think that's, that's the direction we're going and it's the direction we should be going. 
I mean, and you know, in a way that that happens that happens in politics, which is why so many politicians resort to lying and cheating so that they can manipulate the perceptions that voters have. And on that note, finishing on a on a happy note for sure, um, very 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 positive note, and uh, you know, I I am I am an optimist, so it's the only way I can finish. <laughs> well, let's watch this space and yes. see how much we can transform. Exactly. Thank you for listening to the Hive podcast with me, Natalina Hai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.